Thank you. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke 24. Luke 24, this is our second week in what is a little bit of an excursus from Exodus, where we've been for a number of months. Last week, we looked at Psalm... Psalm 118, excuse me. Psalm 118 is the psalm that was sung as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The crowds were singing the very words of that psalm. And then it's also the the psalm that was sung on the night of the Passover. Uh, The Bible tells us that two songs were sung at the end. And it was Psalm 117 and 118 before Jesus went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would become himself the Passover lamb. So this morning we're going to come to the crucifixion, I mean, excuse me, the resurrection account, um, what Easter Sunday would be complete if you didn't read the resurrection account. And so we're going to pick up at verse 20, chapter 24 of Luke, verse 1, and then we will read and focus our attention on verses 13 through 35 where the disciples are wondering where the body of Jesus is, and he appears to some of his disciples on a road as they walk home from Jerusalem. Here's God's Word. Chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is, all, is, far, is now far spent. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to, Sim- to Simon. Then they told what, that, what had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. O oh Lord, uh, you are the author of all Scripture, and so we pray that you would give us the ears to hear what your Spirit would have to say to your people today. We ask uh, that you would again with kindness be willing to wield in your hand an ordinary sinful crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ. Uh, Father, we have nowhere else to go, for you alone give us the words of eternal life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You consider the, uh, the level of intensity the, the measure of disappointment and confusion that filled the followers of Jesus after the crucifixion. And if you want to try to relate to it, then imagine whatever it is that you've poured yourself into over the last three years. Whatever you've invested in fully and wholeheartedly, and then suddenly you find in a moment that it's gone. Even a week earlier. They had a good bit of hope. There was a triumphal procession as, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And people are singing and shouting. And I, I suspect they wondered, where did the week go? Gone. All of it. And now nobody even knows where the body of Jesus went. And so they're just walking back home. What a pregnant understatement the text gives us in verse 14. They were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. Perhaps the conversation sounded like this. I, I seriously thought he was the Christ. But nope. I really thought that Jesus was the one that we've been waiting for. But if he was, why didn't God show up? What was it that he said on the cross? I, I heard him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What's that about? And to the other thief on his right, he said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. What did he mean? And then did you notice? I, I think he quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then with such anguish. But it's so disappointing. It's so disappointing just to watch him passively die on a Roman cross. And then he shouted right there at the end, it is finished. Yeah, I guess it's finished. Not just for Jesus, but for us. We don't know what they said. We really don't have any idea what these disciples were saying, but we do understand the sense of the circumstances that made no sense. Trying to come to grips 
with a level of sting that only accompanies unmet expectations. Their highest hopes have been replaced by the bitterest disappointments. Maybe some of you are here today and can relate to that very same feeling. Unmet expectations, deep disappointment, and you examine the recent events of your own life and your family, and maybe you wonder, where is God? I just didn't think things were going to go this way. If that is you, then you must stare today at the resurrected Christ. You must listen to his questions and his words. Because in Luke 24, Jesus comforts disciples that are facing the exact same feelings. And you notice, don't you, in the passage that the longer that Jesus walked with these two, the more sense he made of their uncertainty. The same is true for you. How many of us like these two, don't even know that it's Jesus who is walking along with us. The passage before us teaches us that the resurrection gives meaning to the word and sacraments because it really gives meaning to everything. The three points this morning, we're going to examine life without the resurrection, uh, with everything necessary, and then thirdly, with scriptures open. So we'll start without the resurrection Uh, Luke doesn't make any effort to try to answer every question that ever might come to your mind. How could Jesus walk up to these two disciples and they don't recognize him in the moment? Uh, We imagine, don't we, most of us do, that Luke decided he'd tell about Jesus and so he picked up his laptop and he began to type out a beautiful account and it's a little frustrating that he didn't just take a few more keystrokes and tell us everything. Of course, we forget that he's writing, etching on a papyrus scroll with slow, stiff letters. But he does, in fact, answer that question, doesn't he? Look at verse 16. Their eyes were kept from recognizing. God supernaturally hindered them from knowing him, which provides us a perspective we, we could never have otherwise, like a, like a fly on the wall. We get to see what it's like. I mean, how would these people proceed If there is no such thing as the resurrection, all they had was death. It's classic Jesus, isn't it? To to draw his disciples in with questions. And the book of Luke is full of these kind of interactions. Jesus asks in order to arouse the interest of his disciples, to set himself up, to give answers to those who want to understand. Jesus walks up. Hey, what are y'all discussing? And the gospel writer takes a a moment of pause so that we feel the weight of that moment, verse 17. They stood still, looking sad. And then we're introduced to one of them, and his name is Cleopas. And that's his name, and you say, well, I don't remember Cleopas listed among the 11 remaining disciples. It's because the Bible is talking about disciples more broadly. Of course, Jesus invested in the first 12. There's also a band of 70 that the Gospels often refer to. We presume Cleopas is among them. But beyond that, there's even larger numbers of disciples who were following Jesus at the time. Look at his words, verse 18. Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And at first, doesn't it sound to us like sarcasm? Like he's speaking to this stranger? But then you begin to see his explanation. Cleopas genuinely thinks that this man walking with him has no clue. Which is why Cleopas is so full of descriptors. We're talking about Jesus. Some people call him Jesus of Nazareth. 
It's why he was called a prophet, one who was mighty in word and deed. From his own mouth, the disappointed disciple tries to explain the things that he really did know, or he thought he knew. And Luke loves irony. It's the third traveler. Is the third traveler totally unaware of the events that have taken place in Jerusalem? Nope. In fact, he's the only one standing there in the conversation that really understands the events that happened in Jerusalem. And so Cleopas is indicative of every eyewitness that would have seen the death, but has yet to see the resurrection. Every person who hoped in the Christ is now full of sorrow and disappointment. Of course, it was only Jesus who knew the temptation to to sin while standing before the high priest, while standing before Pilate and Herod. Only Jesus knew what it felt like to endure the shame and the mocking and the torture. He alone knows what it feels like to have a crown of thorns slammed upon his head. It was only Jesus who could explain how a Roman cross causes you to suffocate as you try to lift your body up to gain breath and eventually exhausted you fall. It was only Jesus who could explain what the darkness of the inside of a tomb feels like and what it looks like from the inside when there is a giant stone left over it. Oh, let's be really clear. Everybody else in the story gets the luxury of being a bystander far away from the real events that happened in Jerusalem. What could Jesus have said to this man? Cleo, I'm the only one that understands what happened in Jerusalem But of course, Jesus is so tender. He just draws out the heart of his sad disciple. And at this moment, of course, none of them can comprehend the meaning of the resurrection. But it's tender kindness that Jesus says, what things? Tell me a little bit more about what you're talking about. It's so humble and and loving of our Savior. In fact, this is really indicative of the way Jesus does evangelism. He asks good questions to clarify where his children are and what place they understand in relationship to God. So Cleopas answers in verse 19 concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And here's the heart of the whole disappointing experience. This is what Christianity would be without the resurrection. Verse 21. But we'd hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all that, it's now the third day since these things happened. And in, in other words, he's, he's dead. If there was no resurrection, then, then all you're really left with is, is a faint memory of a puzzling character who reinterpreted the law of Moses and then did some sort of magic tricks. You see the point? We'd hoped that he was the one to to redeem us, but clearly he's not. Do you remember the word redeem? Do you remember the word redemption? It's a payment price to purchase slaves out from under bondage. And so the disciples hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem to either pay the price with with the blood of war or by the miracles of salvation. And all they could envision was a grand earthly kingdom. 
Did Jesus redeem his people? He most certainly did, but not like they expected. You remember the Exodus? And in the Exodus, God caused Pharaoh to pay the price of redemption. And he paid it by judgment. Every firstborn in Egypt died to pay to free God's people. It was redemption by judgment. Without the resurrection, they have absolutely no sense that a dead Jesus could redeem anything. But let's get this straight. The resurrection vindicates the suffering. It's what proves the victory over Satan and sin and death and hell. But rewind to Friday. It was the suffering Jesus who paid the cost of your sins and mine. It was the dying Jesus who bore the complete rejection of his own father in heaven. Rejection that your sins earned for you. It was the dying Jesus who wrestled the cup of God's wrath right out of your hand and drank it himself down to the dregs. It was the dead Jesus who paid every last penalty for every last sin, for every violation of God's law and every shortcoming of your failure to love God perfectly and love your fellow man as God called you to. Now, Not only is that a major part of the good news of the gospel, it tells you something that you need to know today. And that is that the crucifixion of the king of glory and his resurrection from the dead is a certain declaration. God's economy does not function the way your economy functions. And there are so many times in your own life that you will be made to pause and realize, I actually don't have the information that my Savior has. But Jesus is still the Christ. He's still the one to redeem his people. So what if God does things in this world that do not make sense to you in the moment? Things you can't understand. If this salvation doesn't look like what you'd expect, if it's not based on your own efforts to be a good enough person, can he still be the king of glory? Can he still be the one to redeem you from your sins? I don't know. I don't know because you see, I'm on a seven-mile journey back home, and I have up to this point seen some things that really disappoint me. And so now, from my position of a veiled understanding of everything in the cosmos, I, the finite being, is going to make a determination on the infinite God. With my brief snapshot on the events of a much longer story, I now stand before you today with all certainty, Jesus is not the Christ. You ever speak or live as though the resurrection is not true? As one who just endured half the story? For many of us, it wouldn't take much more than just some events of disappointment. Nothing drastic. Jesus just hadn't done what I hoped he would do with my life. And so here I sit, somewhere between faith and unbelief, as if all you've seen of Christ and his reign is the sad, suffering part. And if there is no resurrection victory to remind you that God rules things that you can see and also things you cannot see, and he always conquers Satan and sin, I want you to notice Cleopas's utter sadness and despair. But who's walking with him? 
Who truly knows the events that took place in Jerusalem? The Christ walks with Cleopas. The Christ walks with you. The resurrection gives meaning to the word and sacraments because it gives meaning to everything. Without the resurrection, now we examine everything necessary. At the end of the explanation of the events in Jerusalem, uh, Cleopas begins to talk about the resurrection. Some women in our group, they ran down to the tomb. Uh, They said it was empty. They reported seeing some angels, and then some of the rest of our crowd, Peter and others, went down there. They confirmed that the body was gone. None of us, as far as we know, have seen him since he's been removed. Verse 25, Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the things the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer those things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so the text places an emphasis on two words, all, or your Bible might say everything, depending on your translation, and then necessary. All the prophets have spoken, and was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? We imagine, don't we, that we would love to have had a pen and paper to follow along with Jesus and go back to the Scriptures with everything that He said. Certainly, if God wanted us to have that information, it would have been included in His Word. But He didn't include it because you can understand the gist of what was taught on that walk in two sentences. What Jesus explained was what the religious leaders had missed for centuries. It is certainly what his disciples had missed. There was a massive hole in their theology. And that hole provides a warning for us. Everyone knew in studying the Old Testament prophets that the Messiah would have glory. But what they missed was the suffering. And here's how it happened. They separated suffering and glory as if they are a paradox. Now, there are several occasions in the book of Isaiah that are called the servant songs. One portion was sung to you from Isaiah 52 and 53 in the offertory. And those servant songs talk about this servant of God who suffers for God. And if you were to ask a religious Jew before the time of Christ, who is this servant who suffers for God? They would say, oh, that's us. Because, of course, life's hard. Glory. Oh, the glory belongs separately to the Messiah. And it was a classic mistake. A classic mistake that you and I make as well. We come to the Bible and we find ourselves... As the main subject of the text, to some degree, they even misunderstood the reason for the suffering. Well, we suffer because life's hard, God loves us, but of course, the path to life involves a lot of suffering. Glory belongs to Jesus. So on to the road to Emmaus, Jesus said, let's make sure you understand this clearly. The suffering isn't because, hey, life's hard. The suffering servant must suffer for sins. And it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, not you, because you can't pay for your sins. 
So Jesus would have explained that salvation works like this. Either you suffer for your own sins eternally or you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you welcome his suffering on your behalf to pay fully and finally for all your sins. You don't have the information in every word that Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, but the content is clear. The pathway to the glory of the Messiah is found through his suffering for his people. And Zechariah foretold that Jesus, the Messiah, would make atonement for the sins of God's people in one single day. In the Bible, you don't have everything that you might want to have answers for, but you don't even have Jesus' every word, but you have everything you need for salvation. And more than that, you have from the Old Testament an inexhaustible understanding that all of this was written not as moralistic stories, but to point forward to the Christ. Two applications. First, the Bible makes it really clear. Your sin separates you from God. And so apart from faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will suffer eternal condemnation from God for your own sins. In other words, you will spend eternity paying or suffering to pay the insurmountable debt of your wickedness toward God and your fellow man. And you might say, well, that's why I hadn't been to church in a long, long time. That doesn't sound very good. And then you must hear again the good news of the gospel. And here's the good news of the gospel. The Christ has suffered already willingly in your place. Which means, as Jonathan Edwards says, you have today an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying loud to to voice his words to poor sinners. Wherein even today there are hordes of people flocking and pressing into the kingdom of God, many of whom were just lately in the same miserable condition that you're in. And now they find themselves in a happy state with hearts filled with love for the one who has loved them, filled with love for the one who has washed them in his own blood. And now those same ones who were once lost are rejoicing in the hope of glory, but it's not their own glory. It's the glory of the Christ. Edward's point. The offer of Christ is wide open. And today's your day of salvation. Second application, verse 27 says it. Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Concerning himself. That is, the Bible is about Jesus. It's not actually about you. So you can't go to the Bible to find yourself. There's me and this giant named Goliath. Therefore, I need to fight my giants. There's me in the lion's den with Daniel. I need to learn to trust God to shut the mouths of those terrible lions that surround me. Or there's me in Ephesians chapter 5. I need a sermon with 10 steps to how to improve my marriage. The scriptures all point to Christ. And if you want to find yourself on the pages of the Bible, find yourself in this. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on the shepherd, Jesus himself, the iniquity of us all. Come to the Bible looking for God's glory. Not your own earthly success. 
come to the Bible seeking the character of God and grace and mercy offered to the low and the needy. Go to the scriptures to find Christ. And only when you find the Christ will you rightly understand yourself. The resurrection gives meaning to the word. That is God's written word, but also the sacraments. And so we close with scriptures open. It was a seven-mile walk, and the disciples, we suppose, had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover feast last week, and in the course of those days, they completely lost their hope, and now they're walking back home. This third unknown traveler makes like he's just going to keep walking past Emmaus, but they urge him to come and stay. Look at verse 30. When he was at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? And so sitting in their midst, the resurrected Jesus suddenly opens their eyes. On that resurrection Sunday night, He reenacts the events that many of them would have seen on the Passover night, Thursday, praying, breaking bread, giving it to his disciples. And having walked them through the scriptures, they sit there and their eyes are open and they suddenly realize, oh, Jesus is like the bread. He is broken. He is given to his people. And all of this would have only made one half the meaning or sense if they did not have the eyes to see that this was the Christ who was known and for sure in their own seeing he had been raised from the dead. They got up, they walked seven miles back to Jerusalem only to find out what you and I already know for sure. Verse 34, the Lord has risen indeed. And he's appeared to Simon. And then they told those same disciples what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You see, friends, if Jesus simply died on Friday and remained in the grave, then Cleopas' explanation is sufficient. Just another prophet. He did some great things, he was put to death. If that was the end, then Jesus would have been forgotten. In fact, he would have been simply a blip on the radar screen of human history. But the other half of the story is that Jesus rose and he walked with the crowds again and he ate and he drank and not just with 11 men, not even just with the 70 who were close by on some massive ruse to pretend that he was raised. Let's just tell everybody else. No, in fact, he was seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses, which makes him not a blip on the radar screen of human history, but it gives all of human history its meaning in him. Suddenly, human history finds its spot here in the grand story of God's redemptive glory. And it isn't about me. And it isn't about you. The Christ sitting at the table with these two has made the whole Bible come alive And the scriptures have meaning and sacraments have meaning as more than the death of a man, but as the life of a living man who extends life to dead men and women. That's why the church gathers. 
not just on Easter Sunday, but on every Sunday, so that the Christ can and will again open the Scriptures to us, so that in worship we can enjoy Him and our hearts are burning with the ministry of the Holy Spirit as He points us again to Christ, so that He will continue to make Himself known to us in the breaking of bread and the preaching of His Word. Christians worship weekly. Because Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday, giving meaning to everything else in all of history. And so, friends, the resurrection gives meaning to the Word, God's written Word, and to the sacraments, God's Word held, tasted, and touched. Let's pray.